right, good morning. So uh, just moving on, if, if you're new here this morning, first off, we, we want to welcome you. We're, we're really grateful that you're here, that you chose to come and, and worship with us this morning. There's a ton of great churches here in Sheridan, and we're super thankful that, uh, that you uh, chose to uh, come and worship with us. If you're looking for a church home, we really hope you might find one here, but if not here, um, it's our heart that you would seek around, that you would look, that you would attend maybe some of the great churches here in town. And you would find the place that God is calling you to. Um, and so that's our heart. So um, as we kind of continue um, on with, uh, with Mark, uh, Pastor Mike kicked us off last week. And just kind of a little bit of a recap, you know, we, we kind of looked into the Gospel of Mark begins um, with, with this idea of, of John the Baptist a precursor to the ministry of Jesus, right? And, and John is just this interesting guy, right, who, who is living in the wilderness. Uh, he's got a camel skin uh, coat on, and he's eating locusts and honey, and he is calling people to repent and to be baptized. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. And, and it's just this, he, he's just kind of a, this, this nonconformist guy, right? He's... Uh, um, Matthew Henry talks about how nonconformist John is, that he is kind of this guy who's not doing it like anybody else. He, he's out there, he's living like this, he's living this incredibly kind of just uh, simple life um, in complete contradiction to the world and to the message that's going on around him. And what better of a precursor to the gospel than this idea that everything is about to change, everything looks different from the way that it has looked before. And so then we see that, that Jesus comes to John to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. And, and so John baptizes Jesus, and then we see this, this picture of the approval, really, of the Father and this, this presence of the Trinity at this point in time as Jesus' ministry is, is kind of begun. Um, and, and we see that, that, the, that the heavens open up, and that, that, that something like a, a dove descends on Jesus, this, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus. And, and we see that the Father says this. He says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember, parents, I think that's always a great message, right? This is prior to any work that Jesus did. It's prior to any miraculous things that he did. And all of our kids need to know that we are pleased in them, just in them. Not with what they do, not with what they accomplish. We need to set our kids free from the idea that they're somehow out there working for our approval, whether it be grades or sports or whatever that would look like, whatever economy that kind of would look like, that, that we want to set our kids free to that. We want them to know absolutely that we are so pleased in who you are and who God has made you to be. So just a thought there. Anyway, Jesus um, is, 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 is filled with the Spirit and remember, too, that Jesus is walking this life and in this world um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? In Philippians, we're told that, that he has put off his own divinity, right? And that he has come as a man and he's placed, it's not that he's not divine, but, but he's, he's put that aside and he's walked in accordance and under the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly how the church is called to walk this earth as well. You and I, as believers, are to, are to walk this world, this life that we're living out under the power of the Holy Spirit, that we've been given this spirit. And so Jesus is, is proclaiming this entirely new thing 
that away from the law, it's been about the law, and now it's about grace. He's entering into this age of grace and that the Spirit of God is going to empower the people of God, and he's basically ushering in an entire movement, something that is radically going to change and alter everything about the world that they lived in and the world that we live in. It's continuing to change the world even today. And so the first thing the Spirit does then, right, is leads Jesus into the wilderness. Thank you, Spirit, right, Um, to find ourselves in those spots sometimes that we don't expect to find ourselves, right? But there's something in this temptation that is is somehow bringing Jesus into a place even of, of perfection and and the struggles and the suffering that he's went through. Hebrews tells us that, that, that he was perfected in his suffering. Now, Jesus didn't need to be. He was already perfect, but there was something about his human experience that the wilderness and, and, and suffering kind of brought about in, in who he is. And so we struggle with that, and that's not really a comfortable thought or an easy thing, but there's something about those realities that change us. The reality of you and I is that we've been shaped and we've been formed, and, and the deepest formation in our lives have come in the most difficult times of our lives. And so God is at work. So what, what do we get out of that? Well, we can trust that God is at work in us when we're in the wilderness. And the wilderness experience for Jesus was, was this one of temptation where, where Satan was tempting him with certain things, right? His, his condition, his hunger, his position, and even with God's word. See, Jesus, every time, he, he brought a rebuttal against Satan through God's word. Every time, it was his strength. He went to Deuteronomy, and he began to quote back to Satan the reality of Scripture. See, there's always this temptation within us, too, to take Scripture and to malign Scripture according to what our will is versus what God really intended with that. And so Jesus goes and he spends his time in the the wilderness, and then it says that, that, that he comes out of this, and after John is arrested, it says, verse 14, if you want to grab a Bible, get your Bible out, turn your Bible on, whatever you do, we are in verse 14 now, chapter one, and this is the idea of Jesus beginning his ministry. Now, now, after John was arrested, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' first proclamation is this idea that, that the fullness of time has come. It's now time. What does that mean for us? What are the implications of this idea? Well, I think that the implications of this is the idea that God had a plan always in place. And that plan has intersected into time, space, and history. And this is the place where Jesus, God, has become a man and entered into the suffering and the difficulties and the temptations of the world that we live in so that he could make a difference in your life and my life. And so what he's saying is that there's a fullness of time, that that time now has been, it has been basically determined from from all of eternity past exactly when this time would be, exactly when the point in time when Messiah would enter into the world as a man to pay for the sins of humanity, that he might offer forgiveness and restoration and redemption and eternal life to all people. 
So the fullness of time, it was a prophetic fulfillment. There's all kinds of prophecy in the Bible that, that, that dealt with this idea. And Jesus fills, fulfills literally hundreds of prophecies about this, the incarnation, the entrance of God into humanity. One of those things is, is an amazing one. It's in, it's in the book of Daniel. It's in chapter 9. And it deals with this end times thing, and it talks about these, 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 these 77s. And so for the Jewish people, they would have understood those sevens to be a, a sabbatical cycle of years. Every seventh year would be a sabbatical year, and so they would group those into this. And, and it tells that basically but when, when the decree was given, basically to go and to rebuild Jerusalem, remember Babylon had come in and they'd sacked Jerusalem and they had destroyed it, and, they had dest- and, and then they had hauled uh, the people of Israel captive and taken them back into Babylon. And there's this period of time, it says, that when the decree went out for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that then there would be 69 of these sevens. And so basically, without messing with it too much, we don't have time to really go into it, there's a place in about uh, 487, I believe, when um, King, King Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah this edict to go and to restore the walls of Jerusalem. And so at that point, basically, the, the messianic clock begins to tick, and it goes on to a period, for a period of about 490 years, and basically, there's the prediction, and it lands exactly at the point in time where Jesus' ministry has begun. So John's ministry is also something that was in time and, and, and was meant to come to an ending point. I think something interesting about John that we have to think about and we have to remember, we have to kind of start to get some context and some thought behind some of these things is that John and Jesus were related and they probably spent a great deal of time together. As a matter of fact, when Mary found herself pregnant, the first person that she says that's recorded that she went and really visited was that she went to the hill country and she visited Elizabeth, her relative. And when Elizabeth, who also had become pregnant with John, and when John saw Mary and understood that, it says that he leapt in the, in, for joy in the womb. And, 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 and so, it's, so they have this, this relationship. They've, they've probably talked a lot about what all of this was going to look like and, and how things were going to go down or, or you know, just ha- had a lot of conversation that way. But John's ministry had to come to an end. Remember, he said that he must decrease so that he might increase. Another thing that's interesting within time and, and, and history that's going on at this time is that there's now Koine Greek, which is a, a, a merchant language. It's the, it's the language of trade. And so now there's a, there's a language that is a shared language by all people or by most people that are at least in the trade, in the merchant industry, they have this Koine Greek, and so they can share a common language. So the gospel is now being prepared to be able to go out and, and to be able to be verbally expressed on, on a much wider basis. The other thing is that the Romans have built roads all through Europe, and so the technology of their day has paved the way for the gospel to really go out. And so Jesus starts this thing by saying that the time is fulfilled. Galatians 4 Verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Hebrews 1, 2. 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And so it's all of these things that, that time is this marker and, and that we live in this amazing system in which we've got this calendar that's continually rolling every day. The sun comes up and it's this calendar and it's this way that God has given us that we mark time. And it's also this way that we see and can understand the reality of who the Messiah is because Jesus came at exactly the time that the Bible said he would. There wasn't a mistake about this. If we really begin to look into the prophecy of the Bible, what you'll really realize is that there's not that much of a, of a struggle with having to determine, was it really Jesus? It's really plain when we get into a lot of that. So Jesus then goes on to, to tell us that, that the, uh, he says that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's present. It's here. It's right around us. It's, it's here. The, the kingdom of God has, has come and it's now with us. And that's an ongoing truth, that the, that the kingdom of God continues to be this thing that we can experience and we can participate in and we can be a part of if we should so choose to do that and as, we, as we walk out our lives here. You see, again, Jesus is telling us when he begins to talk about this idea of the kingdom of God, remember they've been under the law this entire time. But you see, the law was incapable of saving anybody. The law can only condemn the law can only bring accusation. The law cannot save us. But Jesus comes, and as he comes, he's the fulfillment of the law, and he comes that he might bring and extend the spirit to us, right? It's this idea that in his ministry and in what he's doing, ultimately what he's going to do is he's going to impart the Holy Spirit to believers, Romans 7, 6 goes and it talks like this. It tells us, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul talked about this. He talked about the idea that the law was just a tutor that actually led us to Christ, that there was never this system that was in place that was all about how good we were or our abilities to fulfill it or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to be really good or, oh my gosh, I've been so bad, maybe now I'm outside of it. You see, God has decimated that, that, that idea in this economy. His economy is completely different than that. His economy is now grace, which means that we can have favor that we don't deserve. Not because I'm good, but because God is good. And because he's done for me what I couldn't do for myself. That, he's, that he has fulfilled the law and then his death has sealed that so that he might exchange his perfect perfection of life for my sinful life. And that he might then offer to me the righteousness that he possesses. 
But it's this whole different way of being alive. It's a completely different thing than what we tend to do. Like I said, we, we tend to still live in this economy of this idea of how good I'm doing versus how bad I'm doing, right? I don't know. Where do you sit? I don't know. I don't know where I sit. Somewhere between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. I don't know. I'm not that bad, and I'm probably not that good either. But you see, God has, God has changed that. What God has done is said, no, this is by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that you will, 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 will do the things that you're going to do, not by your behavior, not by your, not by your own efforts, but by what God has done. He goes on, he goes on to, to talk about this, Romans 8, 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this gospel, the gospel, the good news, the idea that there is a king that has a kingdom who has come, and because of that king and the kingdom that he's brought, now you and I are the benefactors of that, and that we can live and, and, and be ruled and governed not by not by, these, by the law and by our efforts, but by God's Spirit. You see, God never intended for us to live under external uh, constraints. His idea has always been an internal motivation and an, an internal change. That, that, that God, that we would begin to, to see life as he sees it. You see, that's what it says. It says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, right? Now, repent. I, I think that that's something that we really have to get a hold of in, in our walk and, and, and maybe a better understanding of the idea of repentance because what do you think about when you think about repent, right? About some crazy guy sitting up here yelling, screaming, spitting, slapping the Bible and yelling, repent, sinners, right? But the Greek word that's used here and the idea of this Greek word when it talks about repent is the idea of reconsider. It's about the idea of kind of changing your thought pattern. That once I believed this, but now I'm seeing this. I'm beginning to understand and align my will and what I think with the way that God begins to think. It's this idea of kind of recalibration. It's agreeing with God, and it begins to become the basis for healing in our lives. I mean, think about it. Until we begin to agree with God or we begin to agree with maybe a different frame of thought, then we're stuck in our own, right? And there's been so many of these frames of thought that I've been stuck in throughout my life, thinking that this was this way. It's this way and, and not that way. And it couldn't be that way because I think it's this way, mainly, because I'm a big deal. But see, what God is asking us to do is, is to put some of that away and to step over into a place of reality. You see, that's ultimately really what, what repentance does. Is that when we begin to agree with God, then we begin to recognize that, you know what, I haven't been right in so many of the things that I've stood on, the things that maybe I've believed I was right. Or maybe I would justify my wrong actions because I thought I was right over here. And see, this concept of, of repentance is simply stepping out of a place of denial and into a place of reality. You see, God has this, this place of reality in where 
hope and healing can actually happen. And we all know, and especially if any of you are familiar at all with recovery, you know that there is no hope and there is no healing in denial. Why? Because there's no need for it. Because there's no acknowledgement of a wrong. There's no acknowledgement that I've, that I've done something wrong. So this idea of repent, it has nothing to do with bringing shame to us. It's not about God wanting us to be shamed by our actions. It's about God wanting us to just get real with our actions. Why? For the purpose of healing. For the purpose of, of being right in our lives. And there are so many things, I think, that in our lives that we would all do so well with to just go back and revisit those things. And say, you know what, God, I thought this way. And when I was thinking that way, it was in complete contradiction and rebellion to who you are and what you told me to do. I've been doing this in my own personal life, is just going back and looking through my life and repenting or agreeing with God versus just kind of rolling with my thought and who I am. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it's powerful. It's life-changing. Because what this is, God, Jesus tells us that his words are life. They're spirit and they're life. That, they, that, that what he tells us and how he has called us and what he's calling us to do is about life transformation from the inside out. But that all begins with our willingness because God is not going to violate your free will. God created you and made you as a free will agent and he will guard and protect that. So if you don't want to step over into this place or you won't step over into this place, he is not going to drag you. But when we recognize that there is a new kingdom with a new king and that I begin to place my life under the authority of that king and I begin to align my thought and my process and, and living my life with him and what, who he's called me to be and what he's told me life is about, everything starts to change. And you know how it changes? It starts to change inside of me. It starts to change, and then it becomes something that is an outflow out of my life versus me just trying to live my life trying to be better. Who's ever gotten better? How many times have we tried to be better? How many times have we swore up and down, I'll never do X again? The problem with that is always the self-will. It always goes back to the ego. It always goes back to this idea that I can somehow do it instead of letting go of that. The first three steps in AA summarized are this. I can't, you can, I will let you. If we begin to live our lives like that, if we began to really just visit, how am I seeing the world? Do you know that only like 2% of Christians actually have a Christian worldview? That's the truth. Most Christians today have a worldview that is more in agreement with the world and what the world tells us is truth versus what God has told us is truth. And we need to be people who examine that, who look at that, and are willing to just repent, to look at that, to reconsider that, and to recalibrate our thoughts and our lives in accordance to what God says, not what Tri says. God has a lot to say about life. So, Jesus said, repent and believe in what the gospel, the good news, that God has done for us what we couldn't do. The good news, that he died on the cross in our place so that we might have the righteousness of Christ, 
so that we might be imparted with the Holy Spirit, so that we too might walk in accordance to the Spirit and not in accordance to our flesh. Now think about this. Jesus, everything that Jesus did in this, and remember him as being our example, everything has really begun with his own self, his own temptation in the, in the garden, his own baptism. And this is exactly the place that we need to start. Before he called any disciples, it was kind of all about this, this, this period of time in which he was kind of coming together. This is, it's for us. It's not that Jesus needed to come together. It's that, it's that we need that example and to understand that. John 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, our deepest need is for freedom. Our deepest need is to be set free from us. I often pray, God, save me from me. For me, I'm enough trouble for myself, much less what's going on out there. Save me from me. But it's this time that when, I, when we're walking in accordance to the Spirit, when that's what we're serving, then there's a place, there's freedom in that. And God wants to lead us into freedom. God is incredibly concerned about your freedom. I'm going to hold that everything about this is about you being free. When God tells you don't do something, what he's telling you to do is don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Don't lose your freedom. Don't, don't put yourself into captivity. So Jesus then um, tells us, too, that, that as we do this, as we're talking to other people, after we've worked on ourselves, after we have kind of spent that time with him and we've allowed God to, to change us and we've repented and we've, we've believed in the gospel and we're moving forward into the power of the Spirit and we're, 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 we're just this army that is meant to be marching forward in this world, just each called individually and uniquely with giftings and talents and all of this stuff to go out there and into the world and start to make a difference. And I'm just going to tell you, and I just keep beating this drum, there is so much brokenness out there in the world, and we are so distracted away from what God is truly calling us to do. God is calling you and me to make a difference in the world to understand this life-changing gospel, to allow it to sink in and change us that then we might go out and we might make a difference. 2 Timothy 2 tells us this. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everybody, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. What does that mean? That means like maybe back off on the Facebook rant sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe just choose to not do that. Maybe don't just be quarrelsome. Maybe the church has done a really good job of telling everybody what we're against. Maybe we should just start talking about what we're for. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What's the Bible teach? And it's very clear is that there's a battle that's going on out there. And in that battle, there are captives there are wounded people. There's all kinds of stuff going on out there. And that God has given us this mission to go and to truly be the church. 
Verse 16, Jesus calls his first disciples. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with them, with the hired servants. And they followed him. Jesus just said, follow me. Sometimes I think we need to do a recalibration and a reset of our idea of discipleship. Discipleship is not a fill-in-the-blank Bible study. That's not discipleship. And that's not how they understood discipleship. It's not how Jesus understood discipleship. Jesus said, follow me. You see, the greatest thing for a disciple to do was to emulate their master. Basically, they forewent all of their thoughts about how Scripture, and they became submitted to what he was going to tell them and how he was going to teach them. It was not even the impartation of a bunch of Scripture, because for these guys, by the time they were 13 and had their bar mitzvah, they would have memorized a great deal of Scripture. What discipleship really began to look like was the application of Scripture, the interpretation of Scripture, the what does that mean and how does it apply to my life. And they were living life so intimately together. You see, Jesus and his disciples spent the next three years together all the time. And, and discipleship was much more what you'll see Jesus doing is that he's asking questions. He's not just giving them a bunch of Scripture. He's asking questions into their lives. And the only way to be able to ask questions into people's lives or even to have the right to is to be in a real intimate relationship with people, to be connected to people. See, if we're not connected to people, then A, they're not going to know what we're struggling with and we're not going to know what they're struggling with, right? And if we want to be the kind of church where we all just kind of come in and we put on our happy church face and we act like everything's cool and there's no problem, then hey, we can all do that, but we'll have something that doesn't look anything like church. Or what church is intended to look like. See, church is a hospital. Church is a hospital that's, that's meant to be, we're just all a bunch of broken people. We're just a bunch of beggars that found out where to find some bread, and we're now ready to tell other people where they could find it too. That's the reality of church. See, and these guys, these disciples that Jesus chose, nothing that they were doing qualified them to be a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the schools back in the day, they were tied to the synagogues, and the best students, the most bright students, the, the ones who got it all and who were the best at, at, at memorizing scripture and whatever all they were, those were the ones who went to be the disciples of different rabbis. These guys, probably just the very fact that they were fishermen, kind of told a little bit about where they were at. These guys probably weren't uh, excelling too much um, in their studies. But that didn't matter because that's not what it's about. See, Jesus saw in them and he sees in you a ministry that he has for each one of us. He's, 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 he's calling his people and he's calling us to follow him, to be completely yielded to who he is, to be willing to follow him to every degree, to, to make our desire so that we might look like Christ. That's why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, because our lives are meant to first look like one that is, as, as people who are followers of Christ, 
And then we're to impart that life into others through discipleship. And again, discipleship, not just being, a, we're going to get together and I'll give you an information dump and we'll do a fill-in-the-blank Bible study. No. Discipleship looks like living life with people. It looks like being inconvenienced. It looks like being willing to get into the mire and the mess and bring the Spirit of God into that and to bring God into, into the whole of this and let God do what only God can do because you and I, we can't do it. But God can do it through us. Think about the implications of those guys. Jesus asked them to walk away from everything that was familiar to them, everything that they knew, everything, that everything about their security. He said, just come. Follow me. I'm going to give you a whole new deal. He told them, I'll make you fishers of men. What is it? I, I, I kinda, you know, it kind of looks to me like he's saying, I'll take your past. I'll take where you come from. I'll take what molded you and, and made you who you are today. I'll take the things that you know, and, and, and I'll just shift it over, and I'll let you apply it to people around you. I'll let you take the things that I've uniquely knit you together, all of these things, and maybe we've been spending them over here for all of this other stuff, and he's like, I'll take all of that, and I'll let you, we'll, we'll invest it into the kingdom. I'll let you be a part of what I'm doing here on earth. I think there are four questions. There are four questions that every single one of us ask. And every one of us deeply needs to know the question, to the answers to this. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? God has great answers for these things. There's a world out there that has no clue of those things. They have no clue about identity and who they truly are. It's no wonder we have the identity crisis and the anxiety and the struggles that we have in the world today. The reason is, is because our understanding of the world and how it works has been too much conformed. We've been too much discipled by the world instead of allowing God's word to disciple us and to teach us Versus us truly repenting and recognizing that what I really need for freedom and for wholeness is to agree with God, to understand that he's the one who knows how all of this works. We're kind of looking at a little thing through like this, and God sees the whole thing. And God wants to lead us into freedom. Lord, we're just asking that you would help us with this, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would help us to be yielded to what you want to do. God, may we just, may we participate in this radical thing that you're doing, Lord, that you're changing the world through your people and through the power of the Spirit. May we walk in accordance to that Spirit. Lord, may we just truly look at our lives. May we evaluate where we come from and what we've believed and what we've allowed to shape our lives. And Lord, even some of the, some of the, uh, the deception the reality of that, that we've believed the wrong thing, that we've applied it the wrong way, but that, God, that you have given us everything that we need for life, that within your word, that there's nothing that we deal with, there's no place that we would go, that we can't find answers in here. 
And so, God, we're just asking that you would help us as a church and help us individually, Lord, to just do business with you, to, to meet with you, to, to receive the healing and the wholeness and the restoration that you want to do in our lives. And then help us, Lord, that we might go out, that we might find out why we're really here, that we might understand where we come from, who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. And when we understand that, Lord, then we understand how to live the life that's before us. So, Lord, we're asking your help. I thank you. I pray your blessing on each and every person that's here today. And I pray for those, Lord, who, who don't know you, who, who haven't trusted you, who haven't believed on you yet, Lord. I'm just praying that today might be the day of their salvation, that you would walk with them. And if, it's, if, if they're not there today, Lord, that they would just begin that journey, that they would just take a step on that path. And we ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, really quick, can we do one thing? We can do two things. Brittany, will you come up and can we pray for you guys? We, uh, so, so Jacob and Brittany, Maker the, and their family, they're, this is your last Sunday with us, right? So they're, uh, they're moving to Gillette, and they've just been a, such a blessing to us as a church and as a church body and just what all they've brought to the table and the things that they've helped us with and ways that they've ministered within the church body. So we just want to pray. Jake probably got called out, couldn't be here today. We want to pray over you and we just want to bless you as you guys go to Gillette. And we have been so grateful to just be in fellowship with you and you guys mean so much, your family to us. And so, Lord, we're just praying, praying blessings on the makers, Lord. We're praying that you would just meet them, and as they move to Gillette, Lord, that you would knit them in with great family and friends and a, and a church community. Lord, we're praying that, that all of the purposes and all of the things that you have for them as they make this move would just be fulfilled. We pray, Lord, that they would walk in accordance to your spirit, God, and that they would, um, that they would just uh, be, be blessed in every way and that they would be a blessing to others in every way. So we thank you, Lord, for them. We are so grateful for them. We're going to miss them, Lord, but we are also excited for what you have for them. We know, Lord, that you, you move your people around at times. You do different things, and that one day, Lord, in heaven, we're going to have all kinds of time to hang out together. So, Lord, for now, we're just asking your blessing over their ministry, over their family, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.